the one and only Cliff Richard and the Shannon. Hi, this is David Ghosty Wills, and welcome to episode eight of the We Say Yeah podcast an unofficial monthly Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast where we review and discuss every single EP and LP in semi-chronological order. This month we'll be chatting with journalist Pat Murphy from The Beat magazine about one of the most important British rock and roll albums ever made, Me and My Shadows, released in October 1960. But first, we have some feedback to read from last month's program with Vic Rust, I received an email from Dave who writes, Thank you for these great podcasts, and I enjoy the format. You may find it interesting to know, regarding Quatermaster Stores and Apache, Nori Paramore's brother-in-law, Bill Shepard, had just acquired the rights to Quartermaster Stores, and Nori seemed to be intent that this should be The Shadow's next A-side. So much so that the whole of the two-hour recording session was taken up with 14 takes of Quartermaster Stores and no time left for Apache. The Shadows complained so much that the session was extended by 30 minutes. So now the recording for Apache began at 4.40 p.m., and by 5 p.m. the boys had recorded seven takes of Apache to produce a master. All the more remarkable that this take seven became a classic. By the way, Cliff played second rhythm guitar on Quatermaster Stores. I hope you find this info of some use. Thank you, Dave. Once again, we say yeah podcast at gmail.com. Now, over on our Facebook page, which is also called We Say Yeah, frequent contributor to the show, Mark Cunningham, writes, Just listen to the latest podcast, excellent research and insights again from Vic Rust. I recently did my top 10 Shadows tracks on my YouTube channel, and of course, Both Apache and Man of Mystery are in my top ten favorites. Two incredible tracks which, as Vic said, were the beginning of the Shadows sound. Nine times out of ten, I definitely rank as one of my favorite Cliff rockers from this time, and shows Cliff was still big into rock and roll. And thinking of our love on the B-side to keep everybody happy. Like Livendahl and Travelin' Light had rockers on the B-sides. Nine times out of ten, It'll Be Me and Do You Want to Dance all had softer ballads on the flip sides. Thanks, Mark. Also, I want to give a shout-out to Tim Cooper and Mark J. Daniels and Doreen Adams for commenting on the uh, thread for that month's show over on Facebook. And finally, over on the Podbean webpage for the show, someone who goes by the name of V-U-I-Y-R-X-H-T, which I guess is pronounced... Virixt, or something along those lines, writes, uh, So I discovered these podcasts over Christmas and binged listened. Absolutely fantastic. Couldn't wait for the next episode. It turned up. 35 minutes? All that waiting for a monthly episode and you give us 35 minutes? Don't do this to us. At least an hour in the future, please. Well, thank you for that. I actually love uh, that uh, correspondence. It's very flattering. Uh, V-U-Y-R-X-H-T. I'm assuming Podbean automatically comes up with these account names for you. Um, This month, you're in luck because the show runs for just under an hour. We have to cover 16 tracks on the Me and My Shadows LP, an album with some rock and roll bangers, as the kids say. You know, it's funny. It's often written in rock history books that after Living Doll... Cliff hung up his pink jacket and never rocked again. And yet, as we go through these singles, EPs, and LPs, I keep waiting for that to happen. And I have a feeling I'm going to keep waiting. You know, I really think that these misconceptions about Cliff could be remedied if people just uh, listen to the records. It's a radical concept, I know. 
Okay, I first became aware of Pat Murphy's columns for The Beat magazine through his posts on the Cliff Richard Appreciation thread on the Steve Hoffman forums. And once I saw that stuff, I said, boy, he'd be a great guest on the show. I began our conversation by asking him when he first became aware of Cliff Richard and the Shadows. I um, was born and raised in Ireland, so my interest goes way back to virtually the beginning. Uh, the first record I bought, cliff record I bought, was um, in 1959. I bought Living Doll, and I know that guys were not supposed to like Living Doll, but all the guys that I knew, as I mean, I was a teenager, all of them liked it, but that actually wasn't the particular reason I bought it. I bought it because... I was really keen on the B-side, Apron Strings, mm. and uh, I'd heard it on the jukebox in the, the local fish and chip shop, and that was the first, and then uh, I bought and bought and bought and bought and bought and bought and bought. And bought. <laughs> right. But then you take this lifelong interest in Cliff Richard and the Shadows a step further in these articles that you've written for the Beat magazine, and... Uh, what exactly is the beat for our listeners who the, might not know? The beat is a uh, a UK pop rock nostalgia magazine, and uh, when I retired, uh, which was uh, and this was well, you're obviously when I say I go back to the beginning, it gives you an indication of my age. Uh, but uh, when I retired, uh, I had obviously time on my hands, and. Uh, I um, started writing. It wasn't actually just for the beat or even just about music. Most of my writing is actually done for a um, online syndicator in Canada, and then the topics are, are um, current affairs, history, economics, etc., uh, etc. Et but I also um, uh, do writing on the beat, and I do basically a monthly piece for them. So, like, it's about a lot more than Cliff and the Shadows. I originally uh, did a few pieces for Blue Suede News, but they I, I, I found them kind of hardish to work with. And uh, so anyway, I came across the beat, and I had a... I did, I no longer do it, but I, I used to do a monthly community radio show, music show, and I did a, an interview with Bruce Walsh, uh, the Shadows Rhythm guitarist, uh, like an in-person interview, because he was in Toronto for something. Mm. So um, I um, wrote an article about that and sent it to the beat, and uh, they published it. And I kind of, I hadn't actually planned to start writing monthly for them, but uh, that's the way it evolved. When did you emigrate to Canada? I came here in 1965, right after I graduated university. And I've been here ever since. Yeah, despite being right next to each other, Cliff's career in Canada is very different from his one in America where he had, you know, one hot period in the late 70s. I mean, during the 60s, his records would be released, but they wouldn't get much traction here. And it was kind of a different story in Canada, right? Yeah, he had he had actually two periods in Canada. He had uh, a period around, well, basically in 1963, he was probably the most popular artist, certainly in southern Ontario. Uh, the big uh, top 40 radio station of the day was uh, CHUM, 
and uh, he was easily their top uh, artist in 1963. So he actually sold... Uh, again, you have to bear in mind the scale of, of markets at that particular time. But he, he did very well in Canada from late 62 through 63. The movie Summer Holiday was very big here. Uh, the, uh, into, uh, well into 1964. Tailed off after that, and then he had a nice little purple patch around the late 70s, early 80s, you know, with things like We Don't Talk Anymore, Devil Woman, right. Dreaming, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, the album we're going to talk about today predates all of that. It's Me and My Shadows, released in October 1960, an album produced by Nori Paramore, like so many of the records we discuss on the podcast have been. And this album, I don't think it gets the attention it deserves maybe until today, but this album is so important. It is a seminal album in the history of British rock and roll. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that completely. Uh, it's, um, it was Cliff's third uh, album, but I think it was the, the album with which the very distinctive Cliff and the Shadows sound, early 60s sound, really, really gelled. And I have described it before as something of a, a blend of muscle and melody mm. where the, the voice and the instruments fitted together really like a hand in a glove. I asked Bruce Walsh about that when, when we sat down and talked, and he attributed it to the um, famous Fender Stratocaster that Cliff had imported for uh, Hank Marvin's use some months earlier. By the way, I got to hold that. Ooh, do tell. Uh, but, 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 but very briefly, uh, because it was, uh, for many years, it was in, uh, it probably still is, in Bruce's possession. And uh, he had brought it to Toronto for, a, there was a kind of a shadow mania get-together, you know, a lot of, right. of guy, European guys, basically, who had been um, uh, influenced by the shadows getting together to play their own, their own stuff. So he brought the, the famous uh, Fender Stratocaster. And as I said, I got to hold it for about all of 10 seconds. Well, 10 seconds is all you need with a holy relic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a good-looking guitar. Yeah. The, the other thing particularly noticeable about Me and My Shadows is that of the 16 songs on it, uh, no fewer than 10 of them were actually British, uh, as distinct from uh, American songs. And in fact, you could even go further than that, and you could say that all of the 10 were in-house, and by that I mean they were written by various combinations of the, the shadows, either the current shadows as they were at the time, previous group members like Ian Samwell, or a uh, close associate like Pete Chester. Uh, in fact, Cliff himself, who didn't normally write, uh, even had a hand in, uh, in one of the songs. And there were no... Um, familiar songs on it, whereas, say, if you look at Cliff Sings, the previous album, it was basically, uh, depending what terminology you want to use, it was basically a, a selection of cover versions of American classics or uh, revivals of American classics. But somebody listening to Me and My Shadows, uh, buying it back in 1960, there wouldn't have been any familiar songs. Uh, well, actually, I had, for example, Cliff used to do a... Um, a Radio Luxembourg. Radio Luxembourg was a... Uh, there, there was no top 40 radio in the UK then. Mm. None. 
the BBC did play a bit, but but not a lot. And there was a, a station uh, that would, the, the transmitter was based in, in Luxembourg called Radio Luxembourg, but it was basically a, a British station. And record companies would buy time on it to plug their the records. In addition to that, some other advertisers uh, bought time on it to, to have shows and all that. But it, it was the closest thing to a, uh, a North American-style top 40 station that existed over there in those days. Uh, that's b- before the mid-60s. So um, Cliff had a show on it called Me and My Shadows, uh, and which is, I guess, what the album was named after. And occasionally on the show, they played records. It was a 15-minute show, a weekly show. Hmm. Occasionally they played records, but mostly they were actually pre-recorded, but, but not the studio-recorded uh, versions of the songs that, the, that were on the program. And the, the first track on the album, for example, I'm Gonna Get You, was previewed on Me and My Shadows prior to the release of the album, which was the first time I actually heard it. Well, that's a good place for us to start, track one. And I should point out, as we go through the tracks on this album one by one, that there are marked differences between the stereo versions and the mono versions of these songs. Absolutely. And... Uh, if people have to make a choice, I would say buy the mono, buy the mono. Mono, first of all, is what people listen to. Secondly, uh, in some cases, they are actually different takes. Yes. And in my opinion, strongly held, when they are different takes, the mono takes are actually superior. Because I guess uh, the best takes were actually used for, for mono because uh, mono was constituted 90, 95% of uh, of Cliff's market. If somebody is looking for me in my shadows that they don't have it already, and if they can track it down, what they should find is the Digipack CD version that EMI issued in 1998. It has 32 tracks on it, all 16 mono, followed by all 16 stereo. And uh, if it's still findable, People can make up their own minds. And I think what we'll do today is play a little bit of both, the more commonly found stereo and then uh, some of the mono. So let's begin with that first track, I'm Gonna Get You, written by Jet Harris, Hank Marvin, and Ian Samwell. As you said, an unusual stew of past and then current shadows writing together. And it's got a really interesting stop-start arrangement, and it's a pretty good opener. I looked in the gym. Looked in the high street, searched every place where all the folks meet. But don't stop thinking that you've got me beat, cause I'm gonna get you. Baby, 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 I'm telling you, come on out from hiding, cause I want you. You better come to me fast as you can, cause I'm gonna be your ever loving man. It makes for an excellent opening. I would describe it as a really quite a powerful song. There's a Jet Harris that shows him, as several tracks on the album do, shows him at his best. There's some really strong bass guitar there, and uh, it uh, stands up very well. Right, the whole, almost the whole album stands up very well, but it stands up very well. You know, if I was rating it on a scale of um, 1 to 10, I would probably call it a 7 with maybe a little bit of a 
nudging towards eight. It's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's good stuff. Yeah, it's one of the highlights on this record for sure. I do have some lowlights, but we're not there yet. Uh, track two on the record is You and I, recorded on April 1st, 1960, written by Hank and Bruce. This is kind of a Buddy Holly-influenced number, and I couldn't help but notice that there's a line about singing songs to the young ones, which is an idea that would find its way into a future Cliff Richard and the Shadows classic. You and I will sing sweet love songs to the young ones someday. Mm, Wait and see. These things can well be now that you've married me. No more need we be lonely. We are each other's one and only. Living Doll opened uh, a lot of doors for Cliff. Like if you if you hark back to the the what was it four singles prior to that, Living Doll was the first what I would call a beat ballad, and uh, you know it sold what two three four times anything what anything had sold before it. Right. And beat ballads got suddenly swept into Cliff's repertoire as uh, just as they became just as prevalent as rockers. Now you and I to my uh, listening is kind of, oh, I know it's kind of nice. There's some very nice Hank guitar in it, by the way. Mm. But uh, it's it's well performed, but it's very ordinary. Uh, I, I, I see your point about that there's a touch of the Buddy Hollies in it. But um, if I were, again, if I were back rating it on a 1 to 10 scale, I wouldn't go higher than 5. Hmm. I might like this one a little more than you, I think, in terms of the beat ballads on this album. And just an observation, you know, the first Cliff album, which was just called Cliff, was a live album, so that doesn't really count as a proper studio album. The second one, Cliff Sings, was kind of an experiment with Nori Paramore and his orchestra and Cliff doing standards and then some rock and roll tunes. And this is kind of like the first real album, you know, by Cliff Richard and the Shadows. And this song, I Cannot Find a True Love, written by Ian Samwell, from March 30th, 1960. They certainly like this song enough to perform it on television because that's up on YouTube and you can watch that. I don't know. It, you know it's sort of like um, a British California girls before its time where you're talking about all the girls all over the world. Where, oh where can my true love be? Is she here in London or in Memphis, Tennessee? I cannot find a true love wherever I may go. Where I've been searching clear from New York to the Bay of San Francisco. Gonna move. I'm gonna move. There was, I mean, I presume he still is, but I haven't read anything from him for a very long time. An English um, um, music writer called John Tobler. And John Tobler described this as an inferior rewrite of Down the Line, you know, the uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Roy Orbison, mm-hmm. et cetera thing. Uh, I actually think that's an unduly harsh judgment. Now, I understand why he says that. And yes, it most certainly is derivative, and it's certainly very Americanized. But it's also good fun. It, it fairly kind of belts along. 
Uh, I'm fond of it. I am too, and it's one of those songs that grew on me. I wasn't crazy about it at first, but now it's, well, it's another highlight on the record for me. The next cut on the album, another highlight. It's really the odd man out, though. A song called Evergreen Tree, recorded on March 16th, 1960. A tree of love will stay evergreen If our hearts stay ever true Oh darling, I love you so Don't you know that I'll be This was a song written by Aaron Schroeder and Wally Gold featuring a harmonica played by Jerry First who was in the Five Chesternuts along with Hank and Bruce pre-Shadows. It's not unlike a song that Elvis might have sung in one of his westerns, like Flaming Star. Uh, yeah, except that this one actually predated uh, Flaming Star. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's the first American song on the album. And uh, the harmonica was um, really uh, quite uncommon for 1960. Um, I'm not saying it was totally uh, unheard of, but it wasn't as common an instrument on on pop records as it became, say, a couple of years later with things like uh, Hey Baby and and, uh, I Remember You and and, uh, and Indeed Love Me Do. Uh, But um, it's a a simple song. Uh, I like it. It's quite haunting. And yes. um, you, you probably know this, but it was a particular favorite for some reason with Asian audiences. Yeah. And uh, EMI gave their uh, foreign subsidiaries a certain significant leeway in terms of what they could issue. And Evergreen Tree was a hit single in a, in a, a number of Asian markets. And over the years, it has cropped up periodically in Cliff's concert repertoire uh, in that part of the world. Uh, even when, for example, you might have a situation where he was playing Australia, New Zealand, and then making a few um, uh, Asian stops, uh, Evergreen Tree would not be in the Australian or New Zealand repertoire, but would be injected for the Asian stops. I said Evergreen Tree was a highlight, and that's true, but the highlight of the album, in my opinion, the best cut on the album is the next one, She's Gone, written by Hank Marvin and Jed Harris. This is a tough, blues-influenced rock and roll song that I would put up against anybody else's song at that time. I don't care if it's Elvis, Ricky Nelson. This is as good, if not better, than what was out there. Yeah, it, it, it's a very, very strong piece. It's also quite different. I mean, the, the way it's taken at that, I, I don't know what you call it, almost a walking pace. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
the sort of stalking guitar figure that blends very nicely with a, a very uh, plaintive uh, cliff vocal. And I don't know, you may know this, but more than 40 years later in 2001, it got dusted off. And Cliff actually uh, did it in a um, medley with, um, oh, heavens, I forgot the, the number it was in a medley with now, but at his um, 2001 off-the-record concert series at the Royal Albert Hall. This was the first concert series following his sabbatical year off that he took in, in 2000. Now, I will say this, at the night I saw him at the Royal Albert Hall, the performance of She's Gone was okay, but it didn't have the, the push that it actually has on, on Me and My Shadows. I can understand why Cliff would bring it back, because it is one of those early songs that seems to me, based on stuff I've read online from people who love this album and, and hold it in high regard, it seems to be a song that has you know some serious respect uh, going for it. The next song on the album, Left Out Again, written by Pete Chester, uh, not as strong, but this is another good one. This is a song, I guess it's the arrangement. You know, there's a kind of haunting quality to this. We'll mention that word again. Uh, this is a song that sounds like it's being played in some dingy bar down the street in the middle of the night. You know, if David Lynch had slipped this song into a movie like Blue Velvet or Lost Highway, it would have worked. I think agree to disagree on that. Uh-oh. I think it's a, the weakest song on the uh, the album. In fact, I find it a tad insipid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got one coming up later <laughs> that I consider. Oh yes, there's one of those coming up later too. Yeah. <laughs> All right, not a fan. Uh, the next cut on the album, "You're Just the One to Do It," recorded on March 16th, 1960. A song written by Otis Blackwell. I don't know of any other artist who recorded this, but I don't think it's one of his best songs. It's a credit to Cliff and the Shads and their work on this song that it rises above being a, a little formulaic. I do wonder, though, since it's written by Otis Blackwell, was this originally intended for Elvis? I mean, I just can't help but think Otis Blackwell, Elvis, you know? My time will come so I'll meet someone and on that day She'll chase all my blues away You're just the one to do it Um, it, It's hard to know. Certainly, it's not like any other Blackwell song that I can remember. Like, I think of things like um, Don't Be Cruel, All Shook Up, Great Balls of Fire, Return to Cinder, that sort of stuff. And it's really not anything 
like that. Now, I will have to say I've never heard any other version other than Cliff's. Uh, so, uh, you know, maybe what uh, Cliff and the Shadows did with it wasn't quite what Otis Blackwell had in mind. Uh, but um, uh, I like it. It's actually very pretty. Yeah. Uh, and there's a really nice, uh, wistful quality in uh, Cliff's vocal. Uh, if if I were going back to my one to ten uh, rating scheme, that would be uh, sub and a half. That seems fair. That seems fair. The uh, Elvis connections continue on the next cut, which is the last song on side one of the album, Lamp of Love, written by Sid Tepper and Roy C. Bennett. Um, this is a song that the first time I heard it, I wasn't all that impressed with it, but over time, and a lot of it has to do with Hank Marvin's guitar work on here, which is incredibly cuts loose on the instrumental break, but really, as an as an early throwback rock and roll number, like one of the early Cliff records, um, this is pretty good stuff. I mean, it's really grown on me. Magic lamp in the blue Grand is the wish I wish on you Let me kiss that all the time Oh, lamp of love Bring back my love tonight Yeah, It's um it's a real tearaway little rocker. Mm. Um of course the um the, the Tepper Bennett I mean there was certainly the Elvis connection and there was also a very strong Cliff connection in the early years that began of course with um Travel and Light the year before. Right. Uh which um I have read and I I don't know if it's true, but I have read that Travel and Light was originally in, intended for King Creole or offered for King Creole. But uh, but not not used. But the huge success of Travel and Light gave Tepper and Bennett uh, a significant entree uh, over the next while. And they, if my memory serves me correctly, they placed another fifteen songs with Cliff, including things like The Young Ones and When the Girl in Your Arms Is the Girl in Your Heart and uh, D in Love. Don't Be Mad at Me, which was the B-side of the UK B-side of Voice in the Wilderness. Um, now, um, there was a guy, another guy who wrote for um, UK music papers back in the day, a guy called Derek Johnson, uh, who wrote for the uh, New Musical Express, which was kind of the, the pop music rock and roll Bible back then. Uh, this was before the New Musical Express became, quote-unquote, heavy in the late 60s and <laughs> 70s and beyond. Uh, but um, he actually, Derek Johnson, was of the opinion that Lamp of Love would have been a better single than nine times out of ten. Hmm, I uh, don't know about that. I, I, and I, I don't know about it either. Uh, <laughs> but it, but it, it's, um, it's, a, it's a worthwhile little piece. It's also interesting, or it's kind of a by-the-way, that... Um, Back in those days, um, um, Tepper and Bennett never met Cliff. Uh, Cliff never met them. Uh, Cliff finally met Roy Bennett in 2002, uh, and uh, then he was uh, a guest at Sid Tepper's 90th birthday celebration in Florida in 2008. And apparently, they sat down at the piano together. Uh, Sid played the uh, piano, and they sang Travel and Light. 
And uh, Cliff remarked afterwards that even though (laughs) Sid was 90, he remembered the whole thing. (laughs) Well, he should, because it was a number one record. Mm -hmm. Next up, and side two's opening track, Choppin' and Changin', written by Ian Samwell. This is another highlight of the record. It's a solid little rocker, and, you know, it it has that, uh, we mentioned a throwback on the last one. This sounds like very early Ian Samwell. This is the Ian Samwell of... Of move it here. Can I chop it and change it? Wanna make her be your mind? They say a fool and his honey are so parted, but baby, don't you leave them in broken heart and chop it and change it? Wanna make her be your mind? Can I stop and start? Won't you say yes or no? Can I stop and start? Won't you say yes or no? It's a very solid rocker, um, and, and in my opinion, a very underrated uh, rocker, really powerful backing. But actually, the song isn't just a throwback, it actually goes back to 1959. That's right, yes. Uh, and in fact, um, Cliff did a, um, an interview with the New Musical Express in the, I think it was, I think it was May 1959, in which he talked up the prospect of chopping and changing as being his next potential single. It could have worked. All right, the next cut on the album is also a song that dates from 1959, uh, the mono version anyway, the stereo version from 1960. It doesn't really matter which version you're listening to, though. We Have It Made, written by Gertrude Hall, also known as Sugar Hall, is um, unremarkable, I would say. Wake up, darling We have it made Get out of the sun Into the shade Come take my love Don't be afraid We have it made Oh, um, I would call it dreary and meandering (laughs) Uh, and, you know, on my 1 to 10 scale, it, it struggles to get to 4. Now, I will say this for it. Uh, Cliff's version is not the first version of it. It was originally done by an American called Pete Votrian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in preparation for this uh, uh, chat, I tracked it down on YouTube. And I will say Cliff's version is better than Pete Votrian's original But Cliff's, he's it's an earnest performance, but I sort of think that he gets kind of lost at times. Dreary song. <laughs> well, the next song is Tell Me, written by Bruce Welsh and Pete Chester. And this is another song in the vein of Fall in Love with You and Thinking of Our Love, and yet it has its own character, maybe a little touch of doo-wop in this song. In fact, this is one of those songs where the differences between the mono version and the stereo version are very profound. Tell me, whoa, 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 
please tell me. Whoa, whoa, yeah, tell me, tell me how you feel when I see you looking pretty. Then I think it's such a pity you don't seem to realize that I can see it in your eyes. So tell me. I actually think it's quite an effective uh, thing in the in the beat ballad genre. I particularly like in the uh, in the second half of the track. There's this subtle change in phrasing, mm-hmm. uh, and um, I know what you mean by the uh, touch of the doo-wop influence in it. I think of it really as um, Cliff in the Shadows squeezing the most that's to be had out of a pleasant, a basically ordinary song, but a pleasant song. And they, they, they milk it for all it's worth. Right. <laughs> all right. The next cut is a classic. It's the accidental single from the album, Gee Whiz, It's You, written by Hank Marvin and Ian Samwell. It went to number four. I call it an accidental single because it wasn't initially intended as a British single, but public demand for imported copies of the 7-inch from all over Europe and South Africa prompted Columbia Records to do something about it, and they did. Ever since we said goodbye All because of a little white lie Let me tell you why we parted Let me tell you what my heart said Gee whiz, it's you You're the one It was released uh, as a EMI sometimes did this. When I say EMI, I mean EMI London or Hayes Middlesex, which is where the factory was. They would press what they called an export single. Uh, It wasn't actually meant for the UK market at all, but they would press them and ship them to, um, in this case, it was initially to the uh, the continent. Uh, They did it again, by the way, in 1965 with Angel. Uh, yes, Angel and Razzle Dazzle on the on the B side, uh, but anyway, uh, I remember clearly when this one suddenly appeared in the uh, NME chart. It actually made its debut at 19, which was a, at the time was a low placing for the debut of a Cliff single. But there had been no prior publicity about it, no prior mention or anything like that, no review, and. Uh, I was kind of scratching my head, uh, saying, where's this come from? Uh, and um, as you say, it was an accidental single. The um, UK retailers imported copies of the export, <laughs> and uh, people began to buy it, and then suddenly it shows up at number 19. And then uh, the following week, it stayed at number 19, which was unheard of at the time for a cliff single to stall. And that was very probably because they, the shops kind of began to run short of stock. But EMI quickly, um, they, they never changed the um, prefix number on it, but they actually uh, pressed more copies and got them out and all that. Cliff, by the way, was very annoyed uh, that this happened because his single theme for a dream 
had had yes. like it basically what it did was cannibalize the sales of Theme for a Dream. Uh, usually, uh, Cliff singles were spread maybe ten to thirteen weeks apart, and this suddenly was on the market six or seven weeks after Theme for a Dream. While Theme for a Dream was still up in the top five, and uh, he was um, really annoyed initially. Indeed. And I have to wonder, gee whiz, an Americanism, I would assume, right? It's an Americanism. (laughs) I have have actually heard, uh, sorry, not heard, I have read that it was written on the plane coming back from the States, uh, like when Cliff uh, uh, did his uh, U.S. tour as a special guest attraction from the U.K. in... uh, early 1960, mm-hmm. that uh, the shadows obviously came with him, and Ian Samwell went as well. And uh, the story that I have read is that Hank and Ian actually either wrote it or began to write it on the plane coming coming home. But I love the song. I love it. To me, it's just, just under two minutes of what I describe as rock and roll virtuosity at its, at its very best. I give it 10 out of 10. For me, it's tied with She's Gone as the highlight from the album. The same can't be said, in my opinion, for the next song, I Love You So, written by an unusual trio of Ian Samwell, Jet Harris, and Cliff himself. Um, It's okay. This is probably my least favorite cut on the album. For just thinking of you I just lie there and weep What am I to do? Cause I need you And I want you And I adore you This I want you to know Cause I love you so We will have to for the second time in this conversation (laughs) disagree. I actually like it. And by the way, I think it is the prime example, the very best example of why the mono album is preferable to the stereo. Uh, In the mono, there's an instrumental break here, a very nice 26-second acoustic guitar solo that's completely absent from the stereo. The next song on the album is written by Fred Wise and Ben Weissman called I'm Willing to Learn. Mono version cut in 59, stereo version cut in 60. I like it. You know, this was a song that I didn't really care for at first, but it's since grown on me. And there's something about the chord progression in this song that reminds me of later solo music from Sid Barrett. And congratulations to me, because I'm sure I've probably just said the craziest thing ever on this podcast. Teach me, teach me what love's about. I didn't know I could know, but now I know this is my turn. I've been wasting time stepping these arms of mine. I'm willing to learn. 
Interesting, because um, back in the day, back in the day, I, I actually was very fond of it. Um, but these days I find it just a little too cute and cloying. Uh, but it, it's pretty. It's a catchy thing, and it's it's expertly done. There's there's no question about that. But um, if I were back to my one to ten scale, I think six is the highest I'd give it now. Whereas if you had asked me forty years ago, I'd have rated it higher than that. Well, you mentioned the words cute and cloying, and uh, those certainly could be applied to the next to last cut on the album, written by Ian Samwell. I don't know. March 15th, 1960. We're definitely in teen idol territory here with Cliff sighing and speaking some of the lyrics. It's certainly a a good acting performance from him, but there's a Buddy Holly thing going on here again, and it rescues this song from being skippable. You said, I don't know, can't make my mind up. I don't know, I know I love you, but do you? It's an interesting song, but somehow it doesn't quite work. Um, and I, I almost get the sense, I, and I got it back in the day, and I get it still today, is that it's kind of maybe half a song. But yeah. Ian ran out of uh, ideas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, I'm not particularly impressed by it. Uh, on my one to ten scale, it'd be a five. Well, it would make sense that he ran out of ideas because that's what the song's actually about, right? I mean, it's uh, a guy yep. can't finish his own thoughts about uh, this girl. Uh, not to end this album, it's a fine album, but there are some weaker tracks toward the end. However, things get right back into rock and roll territory on the last song, Working After School. This is a song that was originally released by a singer named Mike Leeds on the ABC Paramount label in the U.S., which was... Cliff Richards, uh, U.S. distributor, a, a record label that did him no favors, really. And With Paul Anka's label, too. Yeah, yeah. And the delivery here, the Mike Leeds delivery on the original record, I don't know, it's almost like a comedy record. <laughs> I much prefer this version by Cliff Richard in the Shadows. Far, far superior to uh, Mike Leeds. Uh, I love working after school. Um, I would also rate that as a 10. I think of it as pure teen beat, circa 1960. I love the tempo. I love the, the, it's kind of the perfect blend of singer and backing group. And um, heaven only knows how they missed it for a single way back then. Had they um, 
released it as the follow-up to Please Don't Tease, uh, rather than nine times out of ten, it would have gone to number one. I'd put money on that. It reminds me of the conversation I had with Vic Rust in the last episode, that now we're seeing the songs about school and being in school starting to fade away as Cliff gets older. Although there was um, one that um, song, I think, that Bruce wrote. It's kind of a knockoff of Take Good Care of My Baby, uh, Take Special Care, Hmm. uh, that was done in uh, 1962 and then sat on the on the shelf until it was included in the 1965 Cliff Richard album. Uh, that's also sort of, I think it starts, school days are over, oh, holidays yeah. are here, you know. Uh, but um, but I, I love working after school. Well, we started off this conversation talking about how important this record is, and it's still a great listen all these years later. Yeah, there are some weaker tracks on here, but everything is well-played, certainly, and well-delivered. And even some of the weaker cuts, you could just sit there and listen to Hank's guitar solo. <laughs> You'd be in good shape. And, of course, Jet's bass is fantastic. Bruce and all the guys writing songs. I mean, really, really just a, a, a real strong effort here. It has to be said, you know, Billy Fury's The Sound of Fury came out a little earlier than this in 1960. That's a 10-inch record. It's got less songs on it than what Cliff and the Shadows are doing here. But all in all, this is a solid full-length album, the first of its kind of genuine British rock and roll. Yeah, that's true. And 13 of the 16 tracks on Me and My Shadows were recorded over an 18-day period between March 15 and April 1st of 1960. And the same sessions laid down both sides of uh, Please Don't Tease and Nine Times Out of Ten. So they were busy boys. It was also Ian Samwell's last hurrah as a writer for for Cliff. Well, until many decades later when he finally wrote the second verse to move it. The second verse. (laughs) um, Yeah. I I had the privilege of... of, I didn't interview him, but I had the privilege of... um, of um, having for a brief period of time a um, an email correspondence with Ian around the around 2000 2001 around then uh, he's a nice guy and before we go I just want to remind everybody that uh, you write for beat-magazine.co.uk right it's a the beat is a small magazine they do have an online presence but right, uh, right. I post them to the, um, the cool. Steve Hoffman's forum yeah. and uh, the Move It list. Uh, occasionally, they get picked up by um, the Australian. There's a um, the Sir Cliff Richard fan club of Australia, or whatever it is, has a magazine, a glossy magazine, a very nicely produced magazine, and they will often pick them up. Again, folks, thank you so much for listening. It means a lot when I see that a bunch of people have downloaded these episodes. Here we are at episode number eight. Next month, we're going to go back to covering a few EPs and uh, stay tuned to the Facebook page. We say yeah to find out more info on that as it is revealed over time. Makes it sound somewhat uh, supernatural. I guess in a way it is. I still don't know how Facebook works or any of this stuff, even how podcasts work, really. If you have any comments or questions you'd like to share, email us at we say yeah podcast at gmail.com. Join us over on the Facebook page, We Say Yeah, over on Facebook. 
And if you're on Apple Podcasts and listening to the show, please leave a review. I mean, hopefully it'll be a five-star review, but whatever review you can leave, it's appreciated because it draws more eyes or draws more ears, I suppose. It's a podcast, right? Onto uh, the show and helps it get noticed. So please do that if you would be so kind. You've been so kind so far. Anyway, folks, that's it for this month, and uh, we'll see you next time. We say yeah. We say yeah.